If you would, open your Bibles again to Psalm 27. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the preacher wrote, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. The preacher describes many things, and often their opposites, for which we should expect to occur during our lifetimes. Even the world understands these words and writes songs about them. But consider birth and death, planting and harvesting, killing and healing, tearing down and building up, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, casting away and gathering stones, embracing and refraining, getting and losing, keeping and casting away, rending and sowing, silence and speaking, loving and hating, war and peace. Today we'll look at a psalm a little more thoroughly than we normally get to the opportunity to do when our brothers come forward and read and, and exhort for 10 to 15 minutes. And in the case of this psalm, there's a wide-ranging sermon that is preached. Amen. And it often is the basis for such sermons in our home during our family worship. So my children may recognize a few of the thoughts that I share with you today. Many times I've said this psalm is a sermon in, in and of itself, and today I'm going to try to prove that Amen. statement. Amen. There is a time for verse-by-verse -verse analysis, which can teach us many wonderful things like we're doing in the book of First Peter right now at our brother's diligent labors. And there is a time to let the entire work preach the sermon for us. David, by inspiration of the Holy Ghost, wrote these words in Psalm 27. And with 14 verses, I have an average of about 3 minutes and 12 seconds to get through this in 45 minutes. That is not very much time, brothers. But we're going to give it a try, and I've already wasted a few of those minutes, so let's get going on our topic today. Amen. Psalm 27. <clears throat> if you look at the, the psalm itself, we could divide it, uh, as is often a wise thing to do in considering and approaching a psalm or any other passage of Scripture, but especially a psalm. And this is divided into four parts. Verses 1 through 3 are the confidence that David had in God. Then in verses 4 through 6, we see his love of communion with God, that time spent in personal uh, communion with God. And then verses 7 through 12 are a prayer of one in such a case, in communion with God. And then lastly, in 13 and 14, it is the acknowledgement of the sustaining faith and the in exhortation to follow the example that he has given us in these 14 verses. So an overview if we were to say, what's the theme of this, of this chapter in the book of Psalms? The overarching theme of this psalm is clearly courage and cheerful hope of a Christian during trials and enemies attacking, having learned to lean on the everlasting arms of Jesus Christ. So let's go for it. Psalm 27. Take a look at the first verse. Thank you, Bryant, for reading it. Thank you, Brother Newell, for allowing us to uh, sing it this morning, which helps us as we go through this, so I don't have to read it again. Amen. The Lord is my light. Is there fear in any of your souls, dear brothers or sisters? If there's any fear there, consider the Lord. Right. What is He to you? What has He done for you? Are you weak and heavy laden? He will lift you up. Here is medicine for your soul. Here you will find strength to persevere. The Lord is my light. Amen. The Lord is my light. If you've had an opportunity this past 10, 11 days to start in the book of Genesis, you know that God created light. Right. 
He said, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, is recorded in the third verse of the Bible. But in this case, He is the light. And the metaphor is, is plain, but the metaphor is not just a metaphor. Though he certainly is the light in a, in the sense of a metaphor, he is actually the light. Verse, I mean, Psalm 84 11 says, For the Lord is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will be withheld from them that walk uprightly. He is our light. In Isaiah chapter 60, Isaiah is prophesying of the coming unity of the church when Jesus Christ tears down the middle wall of partition and the Gentiles come in. And in verse 19, the sun shall no more light, uh, the sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, Amen. and thy God thy glory. Light is so easily accessed today. We walk into a room and we flip on a switch and the room ignites with light, brilliance. Every corner of the room is lit up. We don't appreciate what it was like in the darkness with a candle, uh, with the access that we have to light today. But very little can be done in the absence of light. It's very difficult if you try to walk through your house in the dark and you think you know where things are. If you have children, you know they're not always where they're supposed to be. And you might find that that light would have been handy. But this light isn't just any light. It's my light. It's a personal light. It's nearby. It's useful to me. He is my light. No darkness can come unto me that his light is when his light is upon me. What is behind that shadow in the corner when you walk down into the basement? What lurks in the stairwell? All you have to do is flip on a switch and it ignites the room and you know what is there. That is the Lord to us. He ignites our lives so that we can walk without fear. We have no worries of stumbling over something in the dark because He is our light. But He's not just our light. It would be enough if He was just our light, if He showed us everything that we could possibly know. But the next phrase is, and my salvation. He is my light, but He is my salvation. The word salvation we know can be a stumbling block for many means to save. What do we have here? Well, as Christians, we might naturally think very first and foremost of our eternal salvation in God before the foundation of the world and Jesus Christ saving us, Jesus Christ saving us on the cross as it pertains to salvation from sin, death, and hell. But we have to know that we must divide this word rightly. And so we don't want to simply look at the word save and always think those things. As you've heard many times from our pastor, context is our master. So what is the context here? Well, wicked personal enemies are intending to do harm to us. And we can spiritualize this to some degree and have some profit from us. Let's not stray too far from the intent. The primary meaning is God is saving us from our personal enemies and the wicked. It's not just that He's the source of our salvation either. He is our salvation. He's the one that's going to save us from these enemies and the wicked. And it's not just generally saving but it's your salvation. It's personal. It's not just a blanket salvation. And with all of that in mind, God is my light and He is my salvation. The next question is rhetorical, but absolutely clear. Whom shall I fear? I hope you had an opportunity a week or so ago in the, in the, um, in the, not the preparation, but one of the updates to click the link about a martyr named Alice Driver. Alice was um, examined 
for her beliefs and all the doctors of the law that were examining her, she put to silence. <clears throat> and they looked at one another and didn't have anything else to say. And this is what this precious woman had to say before all these doctors of the law. Have you no more to say? God be honored. You be not able to resist the Spirit of God in me, a poor woman. I was an honest poor man's daughter, never brought up at the university as you have been, but I have been, I have driven the plow many a time before my father. I thank God. Yet notwithstanding, in the defense of God's truth and in the cause of my master Christ, by his grace, I will set my foot against the foot of any of you all in the maintenance and defense of the same. And if I had a thousand lives, they should go for the payment thereof. So the chancellor commanded her and she returned to the prison joyful and was later executed. This woman had strength. She had courage. She had boldness. And she was unamazed. She had the courage that we've already heard from Joshua 1.9 in the back room this morning. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Whom shall I fear? She had boldness. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And she was unamazed. You say, well, unamazed, what does that mean? And often we read in First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 6, about Sarah obeying Abraham and calling him Lord. It says, whose daughters are ye, ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Abigail didn't have any amazement. She knew exactly what to do when Nabal was about to destroy his family, including her. And she went to David unamazed. And here our sister Alice Driver, a martyr, went before the council unamazed. She was not afraid to speak the truth to them. The Lord was surely the light and salvation of Mrs. Driver. And the Lord is the strength of my life. He's just piling it on. We could spend probably the entire morning on this one verse, the first verse. I promise you I'm not going to do that. I've got 13 others to get to. But the Lord is the strength of my life. Strength is necessary for a Christian to walk in this life. We continue our battle with our flesh every day as long as we're in it. In the fear, I mean, in the face of fear and temptation, we need strength. My favorite, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Isaiah 40. And it starts with comfort and all the way through to the last verse gives a lot of comfort. In these last four verses of Isaiah chapter 40 uh, is great comfort in knowing the strength comes to those who are weary. Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint, and shall be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I hope that you've noticed and seen the marvelous example of strength that's been before us. The Lord causes things in people's lives and creates difficulties in people's lives. And we have several 
of our brothers and sisters that are going through difficult times right now. The Lord allows these trials to give us, to build us strength, uh, to build strength in us, give us greater strength and build our faith as long as we wait upon Him for renewal of our strength. When we talk about strength, many think of Samson and what he was able to do with the, the great physical strength that God gave him. But we're not talking about physical strength. There's a greater strength in a, with a, a woman in our congregation facing a life-threatening disease. And that strength is that she chooses to have, uh, not only does she, I'm sorry, I lost my place. There's a greater strength in this woman facing life-threatening disease who must make choices based on imperfect advice from physicians and without any assurance that that treatment will work at all. With grace and strength, facing the indignities of chemotherapy and radiation while maintaining her relationships with her husband, her many children, and her many, many grandchildren, some of whom are going through their own trials, and cheerfully greeting and often serving us, her brothers and sisters in the church. And if you'll allow me this morning... And if the Lord will understand my intent, I want to dedicate this psalm to my sister, Frances Carnell. It was her in a prayer meeting for her, which I'm probably more encouraged by, I think that perhaps she is, that she allows us to be in that, in that place of vulnerability before the Lord with her, where she referenced this psalm a few weeks ago. And if there is some picture of what true strength can come from a psalm like this. It's in the trials that she's facing and has faced and has shown us a perfect example of that. So I want to dedicate this to you, sister, because of the strength that you give us by standing strong in your trials. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with Thee. And if we don't have enough already, David goes on and says, Of whom shall I be afraid? Light, salvation, and strength. With these, who needs to fear any? There is no fear necessary. <clears throat> Let's move on to verse 2. When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat me up, eat up my flesh, they stumbled and they fell. Many are the enemies of the righteous. The Lord Jesus Christ told us we would face them. Our study of 1 Peter 4 has reminded us of the enemies of God's people and the persecution which we will suffer. But these enemies of various kinds who, like ravening wolves, will eat up our bodies are instead cast down by stumbling and falling because the Lord is our light and our salvation. Verse 3 goes on to say, Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise up against me, in this will I be confident. Often the anticipation of a battle is far more heart-wrenching than the battle itself for a man waiting for that battle to come. Imagine waiting in the trenches during World War I for that order to come to jump up out of that trench with the machine gun nests uh, spraying bullets everywhere. And sitting in that trench would cause a man's heart to tremble in fear, anticipating it far more than actually running out on the field and doing it. But for a Christian, faith brings confidence in knowing there's one who fights the battle for us. David was known for his strength and his courage But there was a man of God 
named Elisha who had confidence in something he couldn't see. David led men to battle. Elisha called angels to battle. Amen. If you remember this brief uh, story from 2 Kings excuse me, chapter 6, yes. <clears throat> pardon me. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. God has at least 10,000 angels available, a legion of angels available at his beck and call. Jesus Christ had that. He could have been taken down from the cross very easily. He can send those angels to you in a time of need. But if you're a maturing Christian, you have experiences about uh, experiences of deliverance from prior battles, and God saw you through them. So Paul wrote to us in Romans, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. So when we go through these trials and temptations and our enemies and the wicked come against us, we have experience being built. And that experience will lead us to hope in the end. Because we know that when we get to the end of those trials, our hope will be greater. We've experienced it before, and so we can say, Blessed be the Lord, He has delivered me from this trial. So gird up the loins of your mind today while waiting for the next battle if you're not in one now or enduring the one you are in today in the midst of your current trial. Your hope in God will not make you ashamed. There is no way to lose if you're a child of God and if you fix your sights on Him who raised His standard and leads the host in the battle. Have not I commanded thee, God said to Joshua, be strong and of a good courage. He gives us so much to encourage us. It is not that we don't get get discouraged. Obviously we do because he's given us so many opportunities to be encouraged in his word. Let's turn to verse 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. One thing, one thing have I desired. This is the turning point. This is a division. David is now turning his thoughts. One thing is needful, the Lord said, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. When Martha was busy, much encumbered with getting the food together, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and she complained to the Lord and the Lord commended Mary because one thing was needful and that was to be at the feet of Jesus. Singleness of heart. One thing. Duplicity will create distractions in weakness and disappointment for the Christian. But give me one book, one pursuit, one focus, and I will be a success. And this desire is asked of the Lord. It's not just longed for, it's prayed for. We certainly long for something, but 
David takes it further and prays for it. And he goes on, that will I seek after. If you have a real desire, it'll result in you seeking after it. Young men don't sit by and wait for a young woman to come and propose to them. When they want it, they go out and get her. But what is far more important than the pursuit of a wife? The pursuit of the beauty of the Lord. But without faith, it's impossible to ple- it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Right. The motive to seek the Lord should be a desire based on reverent fear and strong desire to please Him, because He is because of who He is and what He has done for you. But much more than that, He's also a rewarder if you will diligently seek Him. And so He's such a good Father; He gives us reasons. We ought to seek Him anyway because of what we know, and He's revealed to us in the Gospel. But He gives us even more by offering, dil- uh, offering rewards to those that diligently seek Him. But what was it? He had one thing He desired, and He was going to seek after it. What was that one thing? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Right. We had our brother read Psalm 122 this morning, which I will refer to in a moment, and I, and I didn't let uh, Brother Newell know that that was one of the verses or one of the psalms that I was thinking about in this chapter. So I'm very grateful for the Holy Spirit binding us together, brother, and you reading that chapter. It's excellent. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. We're established. We know the identity of the house of the Lord here. It's the Jerusalem in Psalm 122. It's the house of God. It's the local church. And we're here in that New Testament church. His church should be, as it is to David here, a very precious thing to you. Yes. It was very precious to the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. It is very precious because his bride is precious to him. So precious, in fact, that he gave his own life for her, that he might purchase her and make her without spot or blemish. David often wrote of his love for the house of God. And he loved to go there and he loved to do some things there. Think about these actions that David calls for in in the Psalms. Praise, publish, offer. Rejoice, tell, pay, cry, glorify, declare, speak, pray, and bless. All in the temple. Psalm 122 portrays, as our brother read this morning, Jerusalem as that object of his affection. And you heard him stand before the city and cry, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. It wasn't the buildings that he was crying for. Psalm 133 reminds us of the wonderful peace in a church. And when we have that peace here, it glorifies the Lord. The hyperbole, all the days of my life, adds to the beauty and the fervent desire David had for the house of God. In a like manner, David also says, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I love the Psalms. The poetry of the Psalms is so powerful and stirs the souls. This is David, the mighty warrior, who is stirring the souls of men with his, uh, with his wonderful hyperbole in this case of all the days of his life. David had many other duties as king. He had to attend to many things to run the state, to fight battles, but he desired more than anything else to be in the house of God. And why did he want to go to the house of God? To behold the beauty of the Lord 
His whole purpose was to be there in the presence of God. Now, Moses was the first one to see God in a way to learn of the name of God that we have in the Bible. God appeared to him in a burning bush. And when he came back down to the people, he had a shining countenance because he had been in the presence of God. And they had to shield his face so that people could look upon him when he had that that uh, experience with the Lord. At the end of the psalm that he wrote, which is Psalm 90, um, he declares the beauty of the Lord as something that can be upon men. And he ought to know because it was clearly upon him and it shone brightly in his face. Right. He wrote, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. That beauty of the Lord can shine in your face. It will shine in the joy of your face when you're going through trials and temptations and meeting enemies. His beauty is often described and ascribed to his holiness. And that's a worse, and that is worthy of a worshipful sense of beholding our, our Lord and King Jehovah. In 1 Chronicles 16.29, where a later psalm is recorded by David, he says, he records, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Amen. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before Him all the earth, Psalm 96 reads. We have a God so worthy of our affection. You may see a beautiful woman. And, it, and she may attract your eye. And this is the metaphor used in Scripture about the Lord, but this is so much better than that vain glory. This is true glory. Right. And it is based in His holiness. So inquire and behold the Lord. And that's what David did. He went to be with the Lord to experience and see the beauty of the Lord in His holiness and to inquire in His temple. One of the principal purposes of being in the house of the Lord is to inquire. And that's why we're here. We want to be inquirers. The length of time that you've been following the Lord doesn't matter because it doesn't change your need to inquire. Even the greatest apostle had not had it all figured out. Paul said in Philippians 3, not as though I had already attained, either were perfect, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. All that previous righteousness in Paul's life is gone. It's behind him. So he forgets it and presses toward the mark of the high calling. He doesn't rest back on his laurels and say, I've got it taken care of. I've attained it. We come to here, we come here to inquire of the Lord because we don't have it figured out. And sticking to the theme of this psalm, we're here right now that we want to be courageous in the face of our enemies. So we're inquiring of scripture to figure out how to get that courage and boldness and strength that we need because we do face enemies every day. Verse five, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. Comfort for the believer lies in these verses. Amen. There will be times of trouble. There is no doubt of that in every Christian's life because Tim, uh, Paul told Timothy, yea, all that shall, will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's right. 
But preparation for such time begins in the worship of God. And that's why we're here. Enter into His house. Behold His beauty and inquire within. When trouble comes, your soul will be better prepared to face the trial or persecution. The believer is hidden. He's protected. He's in the pavilion. The king's pavilion, when you're talking about an army that David would have been familiar with, was in the center of the army. He set the tent up and the mighty men surrounded that pavilion in order to keep. None dare enter into that fray seeking that which is in the pavilion lest they meet their doom. And that's where the Lord has you in His pavilion. And it's surrounded by angels. The secret place is unknown to outsiders. It's a tabernacle, but it's a secret place. The enemy has no plans. They can't, they don't know how to get there. There's no spy satellite, satellite that can penetrate its camouflage. But it's not just mere subterfuge. You can lay out in the middle of a desert and put a brown blanket over you and not be seen from the air. It's not that. It's a tabernacle. <clears throat> the tabernacle of the king is what it is. Right. And in it, he does not merely provide protection, but he also offers to entertain his guests and make them joyful and filled with His loving hospitality. So it's not just a means to protect you, but it's also a means for Him to give you all the good things that He has for you. In Isaiah chapter 4, the words of the Lord bring great comfort when you consider the dwelling place that He has for us. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from the storm and from the rain. I didn't emphasize it right, so I'm going to say it again. For upon all the glory, for upon all the glory shall be a defense. It's God's glory that defends us. That shining light, uh, that, that pillar of flame that stood before the Lord, was not there just to be um, a declaration of Him. It was His glory, and it protected, and it gave them light at night. And then it turned to a, cl- a pillar of cloud by day so they could look and know that the Lord was always there. Right. Though it's a tent, the structure has a sure foundation. This foundation is built upon a rock. And if you could see my outline, the rock is in capital R. There is a rock, And when we're set upon that rock, no storms of doubt or fear can assail that sure foundation on which we, which the believer leans for repose. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation that he that believeth shall not make haste. Recorded in Isaiah and also in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ. He sets us upon a rock. That rock is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we shall not be moved. Jesus told the parable of of the builders of the house, one building his house upon a rock and one building it upon the sand, the sand being the non sure foundation, but the rock being the Lord Jesus Christ, who's when that house was beat upon by the storms and by the gales, it was not... Uh, falling down in those storms, unlike the house that was built on the sta- on the sand. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, Paul wrote to Timothy, having this seal. This is the seal of why you know it stands sure. Right. The Lord knoweth them that are His. Amen. He knows you, Amen. each of you, individually and personally, and He has set you up upon that rock. Right. 
Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Moving on to verse 6. And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Far from bowing down before your enemies, the Lord will lift up your head. A lowered or bowed head signifies defeat. A lifted head is triumphant. There is no shame to cast down your head. For thou, O Lord, are the lifter of my head, we sing. The sacrifices of joy are from our lips. We can smile and we can be excited, but the sacrifice of joy comes from what we speak. Psalm 66, David records, I will go into the house of the Lord with burnt offerings. I will pay thee my vows, which my lips have uttered, and my mouth hath spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer unto thee burnt sacrifices of fatlings with the incense of rams. I will offer bullocks with goats. Selah, come and hear all ye that fear the Lord, and I will declare what he hath done for my soul. I cried unto him with my mouth, and was and he was extolled with my tongue. David uses his mouth a lot. We use our mouth to sing praises, to offer up thanksgiving to the Lord. Right. These are the sacrifices of a New Testament Christian. Sing praise unto the Lord. Let it be the fruit of our lips that gives thanks to the Lord. These are spiritual sacrifices that we read about in 1 Peter chapter 2 that, that as lively stones we bring into the house of God. Verse 7, we turn now to David's prayer. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. Hear, Lord, is the cry that David cries out. The balance between praise, which we just spoke about, and prayer are the cycles of the Christian experience. There are different tools for different jobs. And in this case, all praise with no prayer, is mindless and even arrogant if all we ever do is praise the Lord and we're not offering any prayer. And likewise, all prayer without praise is just as vain. A proud Pharisee cried to be heard of men, but David's cry is to be heard of God. A good man wants the Lord's ear, not man's ear. And although one can cry in the Spirit, this is the voice of David crying out loud. Prayer closets are good, but they don't need to be silent. You can cry out with a voice as David did in your prayer closet. Even our precious sister Hannah's lips moved with her prayer as she prayed fervently to the Lord, though it was in silence, but her lips moved enough that Eli saw them and thought with his uncharitable thought that uh, she was drunk. But in fact, she was not. She was saying in her heart, hear Lord. That was her cry. And we know that he did hear her. And he answered her mightily, not just with a son, but we even heard this morning in the back room that he answered with three more sons and two daughters on top of that. Praise the Lord. And David cries out to the Lord. He says, have mercy. You know, a prayer spoken without deference to mercy of God is in vain. Because none of us deserve anything. Why would we ask God for anything if we didn't at the same time ask for His mercy? It's only His abundant mercy that lets sinful wretches like me have ask anything of Him. So a good man like David begs the Lord. 
for his mercy. And he does it often. And David may well assume an answer, but he doesn't just assume it. He says, answer me, Lord. He begs the Lord for mercy and says, answer me. We often may write an email or or send a text message, and, and of course we're waiting expectantly to hear back. We wouldn't just sit there and wait for it, though, would we? It would, it would constantly be in our mind. We're waiting to hear the Lord. What's he going to say to us? In this case, we're waiting to hear back from our friend what we wrote to them. We would be lifting up that petition that's important to the Lord, so we should be expecting him to answer. And so verse 8 comes, When thou saidst, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. We have just called upon the Lord, Ought we not to be listening for that answer? Shall we not listen for His voice? The call to seek is general. But look carefully. Each individual must answer, I will seek. I will seek the Lord. And David said, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. You know, David's heart was moved at the sound of the voice that effectually worketh. He was ready to go. He said, O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. This longing to see the Lord's face ought to permeate your soul. If it doesn't, stir yourself up. Read the Word of God. We've been exhorted recently to meditate on the Word of God. I was blessed on the 8th of this month to be reading uh, in about Noah in Genesis chapter 8 when it said, And God remembered Noah. Noah's floating on the face of the planet that's covered with water with presumably dead bodies and and animals floating around outside the ark. Everything was destroyed. And in this little tiny ark, it wasn't tiny in our measurement, but in the face of the earth, flooded, it was tiny. Floating on the face of the earth, God remembered Noah. Those kinds of words can stir us up. Go to the Word of God and let them infuse you and get you excited about Him. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let's look at verse 9. Hide not thy face from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not. Neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. You know, when we see that God will draw nigh to us, we know that He's a personal God. That's what spoke to me about about Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1. God remembered Noah. And our brother told us to read the Bible like it's a letter to us that everybody individually, that everybody else was copied on. So I put my name in for Noah and said, and God remembered Jim. And it spoke to me. And God remembered Jonah. And it spoke to him. This letter that God writes to us is for us to consider. When we seek his face, we know he doesn't have a face. He's a spirit. So we're seeking to be blessed by him. We're seeking to have his countenance shine upon us with loving favor. Jesus understood forsaking. Jesus understood what it was like for God to forsake him. He cried out from the cross at the ninth hour with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Our Lord felt the severe wrath of Jehovah turning away his holy face from his only son because he bore our iniquities and carried our sorrow. There is nothing more painful for the Christian than to have God turn away his face even to a small degree, let alone far from him. 
And so David cried out, put not thy servant away in anger. David had seen other servants of God put away in anger. He certainly saw Saul as the recipient of that treatment. And David was aware of his many faults. So, of course, he begged the Lord for long-suffering. David was aware of his own faults is what I meant, not Saul's. David was aware of his own faults. So when he prayed, he had to beg the Lord to put away his anger. Our prayer should rightly contain this humble acknowledgement. And in the light of our own depravity and the sinfulness of our flesh, how fitting it is to beg for the favor and long-suffering of our righteous Father. Thou hast been my help, David cries. This sense of gratitude should permeate our prayers as well. Besides the acknowledgement that we are deserving of His anger, we acknowledge that He has been our help. The fact that we even know anything about the Lord Jesus Christ is a help to us. He's given us His Word and we know these things. Acknowledge the many, many times that the Lord has helped you in your life, and it's very appropriate. In fact, the longer we walk on this pilgrim pathway, the more acutely a child of God can know that God has helped him. Because that's where patience works experience, and it continues to build our hope. So he continues to cry out, Leave me not, neither forsake me. The Lord may leave us alone for a season. He may withdraw His presence for a test of our faith because He loves us as His child to prove us. But there's a a distinction between leaving and forsaking that seems inherent in this phrase, in in this phrase in the the, uh, verse. You see, a leaving for chastisement may also occur, but that's not a forsaking. It's It's a withdrawal. But forsaking appears to be more final and severe. In another sense, it's the continuance in this phrase of the call for sustaining grace bound up in the totality of this verse. We can know as we hear, put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Leave me not, nor for, neither forsake me. That he's begging the Lord to be present with him, which is seeking his face from the previous verse. And then he ends this verse with, O oh God of my salvation. I put my own selah here. And I encourage you to put a selah here. For this title of God ought to cause us to meditate and consider. God of my salvation. To whom do you attribute your salvation? Is it to a prayer that you said, a sinner's prayer that you said when you were three years old? Is it your parents praying for you and teaching you? Or is it the preaching of an evangelist? Or was it a website that saved you? I trow not. O God of my salvation. David goes on in verse 10. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Does it surprise us? Does it surprise us that David would say our mother or father may forsake us? And he doesn't say may. He says when they do. When they do. It's a foregone conclusion. Isaiah wrote, Can a woman forget her sucking child and she would not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, They may forget, yet will I not forget. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. The walls are continuously before me. The Lord has engraven a memory of you on the palm of his hand where the nail passed through. He remembers you, and he did it for you. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ warned that our mothers and fathers may forsake us. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. 
For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of their own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. You may have a cross that you have to bear that a father and mother forsake you. But this verse, verse 10, when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. We often remember and rejoice in the fact that the Lord has promised that He will give us replacements for our family that we might have lost when we decided to take up the cross of the Lord. But even better is the Lord will take us up. The Lord is our parent. The Lord is our father and our mother. In Isaiah chapter 40, again, back to one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arm and carry them in His bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. This picture of our father being a gentle shepherd that takes up lambs. If you've never had the privilege of gathering up a newborn lamb, they're helpless. They've got these long dangly legs. They can barely walk on them. They're cute when they prance around out in the pasture, but they're pretty helpless. A a small dog could take one out in a hurry. But the Lord, we're like his lambs, and he comes along and carries and picks us up and carries us in his bosom. That's far better than the embrace of a mother or father. And now we change to another uh, portion, another division in our psalm at verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. This humble phrase, teach me thy way, O Lord, is something that we ought to do about how we pray. It's something we ought to learn about how we pray. It's the Lord's way to show us that we ought to pray for His way and not our own way. You know, meekness, sometimes we don't know in this world. It's not used. You wouldn't talk about meekness in the workplace, certainly. But meekness is submitting to God's sovereign will. That's the definition of meekness. Throughout the Psalms, David asks the Lord to teach him. I think he understood a few things from the Psalms that he wrote. But he still asked the Lord to teach him. Psalm 25 is a wonderful psalm about teaching and begging the Lord to teach us. Here's just a couple of verses from it. But the whole psalm is is imbibed with this. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. That verse is like, those two verses are like a summary of what we're reading in Psalm 27. Good and upright is the Lord. Verses 8 and 9 go on. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. That meekness is a willingness to accept that your way is wrong and his way is right, and so you choose to follow him instead. And look look what David inspired the Lord to write. And lead me in a plain path. Beyond being taught the way, the mercy of God is requested. A plain path is one free of obstacles, such as fallen trees or potholes or other hazards that a traveler might encounter. A plain path is one that's made obvious, and it's simple. And it doesn't matter which uh, division of that plane you use, whether it's free from obstacles or that it's easy to understand and follow. Both are very appropriate here. An open and honest and straightforward path will be free from an intricately mapped out and tortuous and dangerous pathway which will cause one to get lost very easily. 
So we beg the Lord to give us a plain path. It's clear. It's simple so that we don't get lost. We pray for this simplicity in our path because we ought to be as babes before the Lord. And I talked with a brother earlier this morning. You know, uh, Solomon prayed for the Lord to show him how to lead this people. He didn't even know how to go out and come in. And we know that that is not true of Solomon who was trained at the, at the feet of his father David right. in the worldly way. But in the meekness of a king coming before the Lord, he prayed for God to show him a plain path. Yes. In, in fact, in the book of Proverbs, verses, uh, chapter 8, verse 9, wisdom is, Lady Wisdom uses her words to help us to understand that the words are easy. They are all plain to him that understandeth and write to them that find knowledge. These plain words are easy to understand, but you know that the book of Proverbs is not filled with plain words. So there's a, a, a dichotomy there, but here's wisdom in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 9, uh, chapter 15 of Proverbs, verse 19. The way of the slothful man is an hedge of thorns, but the way of the righteous is made plain. So your own individual righteousness is part of the way that God makes that path plain. And so the more you live and obey the Word of God, the more plain and easy the path is, the more straight it is, the more without um, obstacles it is. But there's work associated with gaining that knowledge, and so slothful men will have a difficult go of it, trudging through the hedge of thorns, as it were, in order to get to the end of their path. But the words of comfort to a Christian that are so easily remembered from Handel's Messiah come to mind when I think of a rough place being made plain. And again, this is from Isaiah 40. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. In this case, straight <coughs> has the H in it, so it is a straight path as opposed to a crooked path. It's one that's easy to, to traverse. And those deep valleys are exalted. They're brought up so it's flat. And the big mountains that you have to climb over are brought down so it's flat and it's plain. And he exalts the paths, I mean, and he clears the pathway to make a highway in the desert. A highway is a road that is raised up, that's easy to maintain, that's very... Uh, uh, easy to travel on. Our interstates are made that way in order for us to travel at high speeds without many problems and for safety. So we want to pray for the Lord to lead us in a plain path. Amen. And there's one last thought that he, that he states about this plain path and why he asked for it. Because of mine enemies. Mm-hmm. Plain paths are truth and honesty, but those are confusing to our enemies. They work desperately to catch us by lies and deceit. But the old proverb, honesty is the best policy, is the way that we can conduct our lives to outwit our enemies. David had an experience with many who tried to catch him with their lies. He said in Psalm 56, Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps and they wait for my soul. David was very aware of enemies, and so that plain path taught by the Lord is the best path to be on. And it's a straight and narrow path which Jesus taught, straight without the H this time, meaning restrictive and narrow. And so let us pray for the Lord to put us on that path. 
In verse 12, David goes on to beg the Lord to deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies. For false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. You know, enemies are all around us, but God is for us. If their will was allowed by God, we would be undone. Their slander is an old tool. It's not new. It's an old tool of the devil, and he used it against one who it should never have been used against, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was perhaps the most slandered man who ever lived, if you think of it in magnitude, because he never ever did anything worthy of their slander. There was no sin in him at all, and yet his enemies breathed out cruel mockings and lied to send him to the cross. And if he was reviled, he said, we ought not to count it strange if we are. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. When we gird up the... Gird up the loins of our mind with these sentences, with this knowledge, and we face an evil uh, or a wicked enemy, we can be encouraged and know that the Lord has gone before us and we are not left alone. But that's why David said, I had fainted in the next verse. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I want to take a little, I've got a, a small rabbit trail here I want to follow for a second. If you get the opportunity and when you get the opportunity to study and you use helps like we have, we have many helps out there, uh, commentators and so forth, and you know that we we use them for our uh, enlightenment and perhaps we can learn some things and they're helpful, but you have to be careful every time you use men's words uh, when you're reading God's Word. And something stuck out at this. These words, if you have a Bible that italicizes your words, you can take a look at verse uh, 13 and, and you might see that The words, I had fainted, are in italics. And the commentators, some of them, decided it was important to point that out and complained about them and second-guessed our King James translators. They said that those words that David didn't speak were um, doing damage to the elegant, and I'll, I'll quote from a note here, doing damage to the elegant, abrupt form of expression employed by the psalmist who breaks off in the middle of the discourse without completing the sentence although what he meant to say is very evident. So they go on to say, they're complaining about the style, but a comment like this, and I, don't, I understand what they're saying from a literary point of view, but I don't read the Bible for literary entertainment. Right. I read the Bible for a different reason, and it's comments like this that make my skin crawl. And here's why. Because I think to study, I, I, I used to study this way, and I was taught by men who studied this way, who always continuously questioned the Word of God. It's a skeptical point of view, and it's a skeptical way to to look at the Bible. We say and we believe that we have the Word of God in English, and I believe that wholeheartedly. So when someone says something like, why did the translators put this here? I'm going to second-guess them. It makes me wonder who it is they think they are. You know, there's 400 years of fruit from God's preserved Word that they're standing against when they write such. You know, many come, many pastors, so-called, today, will take the Word of God they think they have and look into it, and they look up a word in Strong's lexicon because none of them speak Greek. 
And so they, they say they believe the Bible in the, uh, in the original manuscript, but of course nobody has those. And so they, they, they then translate that to the original tongue, Greek, for example, and they look it up, and really what they're believing is Strong's ability to tell them what the word means, because they don't know, because they don't speak Greek. And so then they stand in front of the congregation and arrogantly proclaim, but the Greek says, and they change the entire meaning of the, of the verse. Now in this case, no meaning is changed. Nothing is lost. If literary form is lost, well, guess what? We lose that anyway when we go from Hebrew to, to English in the Psalms. That's why our Psalters have to be, have to, uh, we have to have Psalters to be able to sing the Psalms. All of these were sung. They were set to meters. It doesn't work very well when you translate to set to meters, so we retranslate them to some degree in order to sing them. Our stand is bold. Let's take a bold stand for the Word of God. Amen. It should make our skin crawl if somebody says, those italicized words, those were put in there, they were unnecessary, they ruin the meaning, they, they, they mess up the intent of the writer. You know, Jesus himself used an italicized word to make an argument. This is my favorite reason to have italicized words in the, in the Bible, which I'm disappointed that my version does not leave the italicized words there, but I know where they are. You know, those italicized words Jesus used in the word am in Mark 12, 26 and 27. If you want to turn to Mark 12, we can look at it. Jesus thought it important enough to use a word in English, which he wasn't speaking, that didn't exist in the original. And this is to prove that our translators understood what they were doing. They understood how to insert words to make this useful to us, and the Lord preserved his word so that we could understand it. Consider this. We're at Mark 12, verse 26. <clears throat> and as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. The word am in the verse. I am the God of Abraham. It's the tense of that verb. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He said, I am, and therefore he called out that the Sadducees did greatly err, thinking that there was no resurrection because he is the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive, not dead. It's a wonderful, it's, it's a wonderful knowledge of Scripture that we have, and I love our King James Bibles, and I'm very grateful. Thank you for the rabbit. We will finish up here quickly. I had fainted. Thank you, Lord, I had fainted, unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Even the strong king, David, who slew a bear and killed a lion with his bare hands and even killed Goliath, the Gittite, had faintness of heart at times. I had fainted. The, the life of the believer is not one of ease. We're in a battle, and we, have, we can be overcome by fear at times, but faith overcomes fear. David first believed. He said, I had fainted unless. There's an unless there to say, my heart was ready to give up. I was about to give up, but I had believed. So first David believed. He had faith. He knew and trusted that the Lord could be believed. But it wasn't just that he believed. He believed to see. He believed that he would visibly see with his eyes something. And that was the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It wasn't that he, he just had some faith to just say, well, I, I don't understand it. I don't know what's going to happen. I'll just have faith. We may need to do that.
but he had a faith that was realistic. He was, he was acknowledging that he was going to see something. And you know, David knew how to encourage his soul. And he's written to us a few times in Psalms 42 and 43, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. David understood. We get cast down. The Lord understands it. But he gives us a remedy. I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord. And that goodness should stir us up and stir our soul. Go look for it and find it. Encourage your heart with it. As we reach this closing verse in, in uh, verse 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Right. We have a synopsis here. This verse summarizes the entirety of the rest of the psalm. Right. Wait on the Lord. This is not waiting in the sense of standing around waiting for him to act, but wait as in service and with expectant hope. You know, Isaiah gave us an example of what that waiting um it looks like an act of looking in Isaiah 8:17 I will wait upon the Lord that hideth his face from the house of Jacob and I will look for him you know so don't think that waiting is sitting back and waiting waiting in this case for Isaiah was going out and looking looking for the Lord it's an action even in the way of judgments we're to wait on the Lord Isaiah went on to say yea in the way of judgments O Lord we have waited for thee the desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. So waiting, anticipating, and, and waiting with expectant hope. And then he says, be of good courage. You're waiting on the Lord with expectant hope. How should you do it? Be of good courage. This is a directive. It's how you are to be. Be of good courage. It's something you can choose to do in spite of your circumstances. And he shall strengthen thine heart. We've had a little bit from Joshua. Thank you for reading uh, Joshua chapter 1 last night. Joshua was called to fill the shoes, the very big shoes, sandals probably, of Moses. And that was a big job. And the Lord understood and had mercy on Joshua that he would need some encouragement to fill in for Moses. Imagine what it's like. I mean, we know Joshua loved the Lord. He sat in that tabernacle after the, after the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord showed himself to Moses and Moses left to go tell the people what the Lord said, but Joshua stayed behind in order to, to bask in the glory of the Lord. Right. He chose the better thing in a, in a manner of speaking to wait on the Lord there. But Joshua needed to be encouraged because of the task that was ahead of him. And so we have in Joshua 1, 8 and 9, a, a, a commandment that is associated with our, my favorite verse there is, is verse 9. But listen to the 8 and 9 in context. This book of the law, the Bible, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Amen. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee. Amen. Joshua is given a prescription from the mouth of God. God is speaking to him, and he hears these words. The word of uh, the book of the law shall not depart from thy mouth. It doesn't mean it won't come out of his mouth. It means that he won't ever stop talking about it. He will continuously talk about the, the law. He will meditate on it day and night, all day long. And then he observes to do that which was written in that law. 
to go and do it. If he will do these things, speak of the word, read the word day and night and meditate on it and do what the word says, God gives him a promise. Thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. So he gives him the the formula for good success and then says, be of good courage and be strong because you're going to have success if you do these three things. And success... Good success and prosperous ways are promises of God that, that we keep in the, in the book of the law in our mouths and meditate on it day and night and fulfill and do his will. The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous is as bold as a lion. You see, courage and boldness result from one who reads and meditates on and obeys the Bible. Young men, do you think that playing uh, or, I'm sorry, do you want to be bold and courageous? If you're a young man, boldness and courageousness are something that we admire. Forget about the pathetic video games that you might play where you shoot some uh, pretend soldier who moves slower than any real soldier I've ever seen. And forget about the exploits on the field or the court or the course or the track or whatever place you might play. If you think an advanced degree from our best universities will give you courage, Give me a break. And if you think making a hundred grand a year is courageous, you're wrong. There's no way. There's only one way to be bold and courageous. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood how to be courageous. They studied this word and they did exactly what Joshua did. And so they were able to stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, probably the most terrible king to ever rule on the earth, and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. You see, these three friends of Daniel weren't moved by the power of probably the most terrible king. They were so bold and confident in Jehovah that they would not be backed down. Just like our martyr, Mrs. Alice Driver, they had no fear for their lives. So we don't, don't need to live in fear. And we are not in a, in a time of fear of persecution like some of these were. The great cloud of witnesses that our brother preached to us and taught to us over the course of the last year has been very instructive. We can look at those martyrs and think to ourselves, well, I could never do that. Or we can look at them and realize God has chosen you for this time, for such a time as this were you chosen. And that is to live in the perilous times of the last days. You have a different battle. It takes a different kind of courage. It takes a different kind of strength. But it's still the same source of strength as all of those that went before us have. That great cloud of witnesses understands and knows that you get discouraged. They got discouraged. But hope in the Lord and build yourself up by reading and meditating on His Word and obeying it. Strong Christians may faint at times, but courage and strength are ready at hand if preparations are made in advance. Constant attendance to the house of God where inquiry is made, reading, meditating, and hiding and obeying God's word in your heart, praying for strength and deliverance from your enemies. These are the preparations of a wise Christian, and you can have perfect peace. Isaiah 26, 3 through 4 is what we'll close with. If you want to turn with me, these are precious words of the Lord to encourage us. Isaiah 26, 
verse 3. Isaiah chapter 26. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Amen. Amen.